0: What up, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of R2C2. Today, you are going to get to hear some amazing stories from one of CC's idols, Dave Stewart. I can't wait for you to hear his stories about Reggie Jackson, Sandy Koufax, Bob Gibson. You really, they're absolutely incredible. Plus, C officially declares the best player in baseball, and it is not who you think it is. That's part of slinging heat. It's all coming up right now on an all-new R2C2. R2C2 is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet your favorite sports online? If you can dream it, you can probably bet it through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-under, props, and in-game bets all in an easy-to-use app. When you win, you can receive your winnings in your bank account in as little as 48 hours through a safe and secure process. Check out FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel. More ways to win. 21 plus and present in new jersey pennsylvania west virginia indiana or colorado gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER or in west virginia visit www.1-800-GAMBLER.net in indiana call 1-800-9-WITH-IT or in colorado call 1-800-522-4700
1: up, everybody we back another R2C2 What's going on bro World Series edition man World Series edition I'm out of breath I, I like I thought I was in good shape but like I'm moving around and shit like I'm out of breath what the fuck Well you y- you're out of breath
0: because of two things one you're nervous because we're about to talk to your childhood hero
1: Yo so <laughs> nervous man it's crazy it's weird <laughs> I always plan my I, like I can actually talk to him I don't get how I get around Shaq um yeah. around Stu because I actually, can, I did what he, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so we can talk Yeah, did pitching. the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but like, so, but it's still, you know, it's, it's still uh, it's still nerve-wracking. It's still a lot of fun to be able to, you know, I still feel like a nine-year-old every time I'm around him, so it's, it's fun.
0: You guys are gonna, you're gonna love this conversation with Dave Stewart. I mean, he is, first of all, he's one of the great October pitchers of all time. He's CeCe's childhood hero, and he is an unbelievable storyteller. Yes. And, oh, oh this, the stories you are gonna hear about Reggie Jackson and, and Tony La Russa and Bob Gibson, they're gonna blow your mind. Like they really are. You, you're gonna be, you will thoroughly enjoy these stories. I promise you. Um, and then I think the other reason you're out of breath, see, is because we start every podcast with sling and heat, and you, your your first sling and heat today, it required a prop.
1: It did. And, and you know, I'm a huge overreactor. So, like anything happens, then <laughs> I dub somebody the best ever, and you know, uh, all of that shit. But I don't think this is an overreaction. Uh, my first sling in heat is that Mookie Betts is now the best player in baseball, guys.
0: I you love it. it. Look night. at your Mookie Betts jersey you're jersey. holding
1: up. You see that? You, you see that?
0: You could my never Mookie have Betts gotten jersey. it if he was still with the Red Sox, but now. Ever. Are you, yeah, you kidding me? No yeah. chance. Now you can rock the Mookie Betts now Dodgers I'm, I'm jersey. I'm rocking that
1: shit for sure. And I got it in a small size, too. You know, my, my new body. So I'm, I'm good with it. <laughs> so you're,
0: you're saying Mookie Betts is the best player in baseball today?
1: Yeah, man. Did you see? I mean, just watching him, you know, robbing homers um, on the biggest stage in the, a, in the NLCS, um, the way he can manuf- manufacture runs. I mean, there ain't really nothing he can't do out on the field. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the best players perform in October, right?
0: Yeah. Did you just say best player ever or best player now? No, best player in the
1: big leagues. Okay, right yeah, 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 yeah. Best, best player, player in the big leagues. See, you know what? It's
0: hard to argue. Look at the way he's impacted games during October. It's ridiculous. He's we all know how good Mike
1: Trout is. You know what I'm saying? But but we don't get to see him on the stage and to see Mook to you know perform at his best right now. Uh, it's been fun to watch, man. It's like a little brother to me. I had to go go get the, the Dodgers jersey. And this shit showed up right on time, too. I've been waiting for this motherfucker the whole season. So, perfect timing. You going to wear that tonight when we do our Pitch in Foundation virtual watch party? Definitely wearing this shit tonight. Nice,
0: man. (laughs) I I agree, though. You watch the way Mookie has impacted these playoffs. The defense. I mean, the way he's robbing home runs casually. The stolen bases, like what we saw in the fifth inning of Game 1 of the World Series. The homers, the average, the eye. Red Sox fans have to be beside themselves
1: watching this knowing nah, he's a homegrown he, dude he won them a world series bro that you know what i'm saying like they got they you got don't a, think they're in pain watching what he's doing right now i mean i i think he, to a, a degree yeah but i mean it worked out if he didn't win a world series with the with the red sox then you'd be even more pain but he brought yeah. them a title he got they got a parade out of mookie so yeah i mean he did his job you know what i mean like he did so, his job for and, sure, and but it's and gotta they got to be a chip, So I'm but, sure it's painful, but it ain't that bad because they can go look at that World Series and, and not feel bad. <laughs> All right. What about your second sling heat today, C? My second sling heat is take our bets that we give you guys lightly. <laughs> don't, don't. <laughs> I love doing a fan duel, but I felt so bad. Because uh, people spending their money. Like it's one thing for me to lose my money on the Tennessee and in Houston, Houston bat, you know what yeah. I mean, but like, yeah, just take my best lightly because I felt like an asshole watching that game the other day. <laughs> hey, you, you all, Tennessee I, came out looking I was really fresh. It. The
0: let me tell you something: the oh, the, picking the under didn't ever look good. That right? was fucking that, terrible. That, that Derrick
1: was... Henry is a fucking animal. MVP How can you candidate, be man. That big, that strong, and that fast because yeah. he ran. he was he ran out of the frame from a a, a linebacker in a DB. He's like, incredible. How? I don't understand it. That shit is incredible.
0: But I will say, and I, and I appreciate the guilt you feel and the empathy you have, but you have you have been more good than bad in our pick. So, yes, take it lightly, but, but Man, I, I, I feel, still I felt I still so take bad good. last week. <laughs> whoever,
1: whoever listened to my belt last week, I'm sorry. My bad. My bad. <laughs> that is I'll great. I'll be better this week for sure.
0: Hey, C, how about I'm, I'm going to give you the third sling in heat today, okay? Yeah. A- and it's this. You know, we are spending a lot of time starting to wonder about scheduling, how COVID's affecting that. Obviously, we see cases arising as is expected, respiratory viruses as the weather gets colder. That just is what happens naturally. And we're seeing that around the country um, and the world, and it is going to continue into winter. And we're wondering, when are we going to bring back these, these leagues? And most specifically with the NBA, right? Because they're the ones that are completely off their normal schedule. And there's some thought as to, okay, well, do you wait until you can get fans in the stands? Because you got to remember, these teams are losing money each game by not having fans in the stands. Every game. Every game. And it's one thing if you're talking about, you know, a short term investment in the business like this past year was it's hard to sign up for another season where you know you were just gonna lose money every game, which is the reality financially for these teams. Um, if you don't have fans in the stands. So you want fans in the stands, but there's no obvious path to when that happens. So if you're the NBA, it's not like you can say, hey, if we start March 1st, we'll definitely be at 100% capacity. You probably won't be, and we Mm -hmm. have no idea. So the question is, do you say, hey, we're going to try and start as early as possible because there is no obvious landing spot for fans, and we don't want a huge gap of time off, and we do want to get back on a regular schedule, or do we still think financially? Hey, we'll take the ratings hits. We ha- we have long media contracts, even if we have to play the playoffs again at a displaced time and the ratings get slammed like they did this year. We will take the elevated odds of having more fans in the stands the longer we push it back. But as I propose to see, I have a bigger issue. Just I set the stage to say that's kind of what we've been thinking about. This is what we haven't talked about yet, which is going to become the biggest off-season sports story. And it's going to be all of these leagues and unions are going to have to agree to another CBA addendum, another restart CBA, if you will. And that is going to be, as much as this last one was a monster and a bear to deal with, this one may be even more difficult because you're going to be dealing with more games, right, potentially, but without fans. And then how do you divvy up the pot if I'm doing all my games? If I'm an athlete, I'm playing, let's say, in baseball, 162. But then do I have to account for the lack of revenue because there are no fans in the stands? How, how are we going to come to an agreement on that? Because one thing, when I'm only playing 60, it's different when I'm doing all my work, but we just don't have people to watch it, and the revenue model changes. I think that is going to become a huge story for all of these sports. Maybe not the NFL but because they're fall, but baseball, basketball, look out.
1: That's that's the bigger story than anything. It's the yes. CBA and the getting the getting the, the players to agree with the owners on the money situation. Um, as far as starting, I think the NBA should start right away. I think they should not right away. I think they should start um, January first. You know what I mean? Um, try to get ready as quick as possible to start January first and 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 go from and rock from there. I mean, and as you get into the spring, you may get more fans. You may have fans full capacity by the finals. You know what I'm saying? In June. But to get back on a regular schedule and end the season in June, to be then 2021-2022 on a regular basketball schedule, if that's what they want, then they should start in January. But they need to start working on that CBA right now. I know baseball. I mean, we know how difficult it was for them to get the 60-game schedule. We know, you know, sometimes the owners and, you know, we know that they wanted to play 60 games. Let's put it like that um so we'll see what they come up with this time um and we'll see if the players will be able to agree to it
0: this will be something we'll end up talking about throughout the weeks to come because it is going to be it's going to be a big the cba story.
1: more than anything though yeah like, like yeah i mean you know getting started back i mean that that's one thing but just actually getting the players to agree on like you said if i'm playing 162 cuz you're going to pay me period Right. i don't give a, a- fuck who they're watching a- <laughs> a- a- if I'm right. and right every the- game I need every fucking penny of 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 what I'm owed. Sorry, and
0: and 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 a lot of players are going to feel that way, and I understand why you do. And the owners are going to say, "Well, we're losing sixty percent of the revenue, so yeah, what do we and, do, or whatever it is?" I, and it's going to be it's going to be a it's going to be a it's going to be tough to find common ground.
1: And I heard, you know, I heard former players. Text was on, you know, saying that they need to play for the fans and blah blah blah. Man, listen, <laughs> it was just funny coming. From, listen, hearing that come from him. You know what I'm saying? Where I know most players, if you're out there playing, you're putting your body on the line you want to get paid for. Period. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, if you're going to play a full schedule, you're going to have to pay me. Period.
0: Hey, We're going to watch this story. I'm sure it'll be on Sling and Heat again. Um, but on this episode of R2C2, we are about to speak with your childhood idol, Dave Stewart. This is a man who, two-time ALCS MVP, a World Series MVP, one of the great October pitchers of all time, a three-time World Series champion, a black ace, a black ace. That's right,
1: <laughs> and and
0: one of, I mean, one of the best storytellers I've ever heard. Just, just incredible. He is,
1: and he he knows everybody. He's been around everybody. He's obviously been. He's had different jobs in the game, from you know, uh, being a, a GM to being a, an agent. Um, so he knows everybody, man, and he's just fun to be around and. Um, a huge inspiration to me so you know I thank him you know know, greatly for being able to come on take some time out to come on the podcast for sure
0: so without further ado here is Dave Stewart on R2C2 I feel like See, We just need to start with this. I mean, this is this is an all time favorite player of yours. Dave Stewart joining R2C2. I I mean, I've heard Dave Stewart stories from you since we started doing this podcast. Right. So, I mean, first and foremost, what is it like for you to have a relationship now with one of your heroes,
1: man? Now it's really cool to have him be able to come on the pod obviously um to be able to call him and you know text him whenever I need is is a cool thing um you know I, like I said I mean everybody knows that he's my you know my favorite pitcher my favorite player of all time so you know the reason why I stepped on the mound was because of him so uh you know I feel like I owe everything to him so to have him come on uh the pod is is definitely a blessing and and I'm just happy to have him here for sure Dave what is it like
0: for you when you hear CC say that, and knowing you know what a big influence you were on him, and, and wanting to get into this game as a pitcher,
2: it's just funny the, the things that that you you never know, the things that you don't know. <laughs> um, and and what I mean by that is, you know, I remember meeting CeCe as a as a young man, um, and then you know after that period of time. Things just kind of move on, and then all of a sudden he's in the big leagues, and we're having a conversation in in the locker room talking about different things having to do with pitching. And then after that, you start reading um, comments from him stating um, the things that he has about me and saying the things that he has about me. But it's a really, really proud feeling. Good feeling is not the word. It's proud. It's it's beyond proud. If if there is such a, a thing to um, to have had that type of uh, influence on CeCe. Um, and quite frankly, statistically, he did it better than I ever did it. Um,
1: <laughs>
2: at, at the highest level, he did it better than I ever did it. Wins, uh, years playing, um, the impact that he's had on on the community uh, and the communities that he's played in. I mean, he's done it better than I've ever done it and you know I'm just extremely proud to to have CC put his stamp on me the way that he has um you know sure enough gonna be a hall of famer there's no doubt about that in my mind um and it's just it's just a a unbelievable feeling to to have somebody bestow um those type of things on you um as he has with me
1: you know what the, the the one thing about me always starting a foundation and and doing the things that I do in the community and giving back is, I, I want to be able to sit there, you know, twenty years from now and have a kid be like, "Yo, you came to my Boys and Girls Club. I started my I did all of this stuff because of what you did for me, and it was it all started with you know him walking into my Boys and Girls Club. So, you know, everything that I do in the community, you know, giving back the backpack giveaways, all of that stuff started on that day. And and if I can be that for just one kid. You know, I feel like, you know, it's all worth it. So, like I said, I mean, it was it's just been a blessing and, and very grateful that I've been able to, you know, have these type of people in my life and and them have that type of impact on me to, you know, to be able to, for me to be able to do what, I, what I've done in my career.
0: Yeah, see, I think that's the coolest thing, Dave, that, you know, for CeCe, it starts with him meeting you at the Boys and Girls Club. As, I mean, as a young kid, it's so cool. It's not, you know, it's not just, hey, he was watching you from afar. No, 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 he met you. And that had this, this huge impact. And I mean, I'm sure when you're going and you're doing that type of thing, right? Like that's the exact story you want to hear about you have this interaction, you inspire this young kid and he goes on to live out his dreams.
2: I gotta be honest, man. When I, when I got involved in the Boys and Girls Club, um, even as a youngster, um, you know, it was a place for me to go you know, I'm, from, I'm from a family of eight kids. Um, my mother um, pretty much raised all of us. And my father passed away. And so it was a place for me to go. My sister worked there. Um, and then she brought me into the club. And, you know, if not for the club, I would have, who knows what path I would have gone down. The, the boys club at that time in my life was exactly what I needed to keep me on the right path. And so all I've, Oh, my only intent was to just be sure that I gave other kids the same opportunity um that I had when I was when I was growing up. And eventually I became on I, I eventually was on the national board of directors for the Boys and Girls Club. Um I still serve as an honorary board member in the Bay Area. So, you know, I was trying to give back in the way that the boys club had given back to me and and try to have other kids feel the influences that the boys and girls club had had on me and and that's that's how i ended up there um on that on that night
0: that's really cool see i mean i think you i always hear you talk about an audience always hears you talk about the boys and girls club and the influence it had and just hearing dave talk about the impact it had on him but see give us an idea of what you know, why, why it was so critical in your life and what those experiences were, were like and, and why it influenced you the same way Dave just talked about it, influencing him.
1: I mean, exactly what he just said. If it wasn't for the club, you know, after school, I would have been going, you know, hanging out on the corners. I would have been going hanging out in the street. So it was always a safe place for me to go get my homework done, like have good mentors like the first time I ever went camping was at the boys and girls club. First time I ever went to an A's game was at the boys and girls club. First time I ever <laughs> went to a warriors game was with the boys and girls club. So all these different type of experience, you know, getting out of Vallejo came from the boys and girls club. And if not, if I signed up to, to go to that club, you know, who knows what I, what I would have gotten into on those days and in, in different situations. So the club was a place of a, a safe place for me to go. And I started going from the first grade all the way until I started playing high school sports. So, Um, it was just a, it's just a part of who I am. You know what I mean? So I relate to the kids at the club and any boys and girls club in America better than I can, you know, anybody. So I know what those kids are going through. So, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I I owe my life to the club and, and, uh, like I said, it's just a very, very safe place for you to go and, and be productive as a kid.
0: We have got to tell you about our new favorite bet concept this season. Same game parlays on FanDuel Sportsbook. It's pretty simple. All you have to do is combine multiple bets from one game into a single parlay. This way, the payouts are even bigger when you win. What's cool, too, is FanDuel will refund the first same game parlay you lose on any NFL game each week up to $10. That means you can bet a different parlay risk-free every NFL week all season long. Now, C, as you heard earlier in the episode, he feels a little bad about uh, not getting his pick right last week. But today, you're going to win no matter what, sort of, because me and C are going opposites. We're both looking at bucks at the Raiders, but I'm taking Tampa minus three. C is taking the Raiders Plus three. I like Tampa's D, what they did last week. Brady getting a little rhythm, seeing Gronk back involved. I do think they're a good team. And if they play defense like that, they'll be real good. And we know C is a Raiders fan, and he was happy to be getting points at home. The same game parlay I'm going to add to it is Tampa scoring more than 27 points. Tampa over the 27 plus. The Bucks minus three. That is my same game parlay. If you like our picks, go ahead and bet them. And with your first NFL or World Series same game parlay of the week, you'll get 10 bucks back if we don't win. Now there's one catch. FanDuel is the only sportsbook app that has these same game parlays. So if you don't already have a FanDuel account, just use the promo code R2C2 when you sign up so that they know we sent you. That's FanDuel Sportsbook Promo code R2C2. 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, West Virginia, Indiana, Colorado, or Iowa. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in seven days. Max refund $10. Terms apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. In Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. And in Iowa, call 1-800-BETS-OFF. Now, this time of year, obviously, we just got done with the ALCS, and uh, we have the World Series going on right now. So, I mean, not only is Dave Stewart the perfect guest because he's your guy, see, but also because this is a man who knew how to pitch in October. You know, he (laughs) he's a two-time ALCS MVP, World Series MVP in 1989 when he was 2-0 with a 169 ERA. Dave, when you think about This time of year, these particular moments, why or or what was so key to you elevating and pitching as well as you did in these big spots? Like, what are the keys to being able to thrive when the pressure's on and the stakes are as high as they are in October?
2: I think it really comes down to I remember days and playing in the backyard with my brother when um, every situation my brother's five years older every situation he put me in was a pressure situation, was always bases loaded with, with one out facing Willie Mays <laughs> or facing, you know, it was always those type of situations when I was a kid growing up. And so when you, when you go back to those situations, you almost lived it before you get the opportunity to do it. And then, you know, the, the, the second part of it is as an adult, you know, playing for Tony LaRusso and Dave Duncan, Tony always made situations bigger than they were. Um, you know, a lot of my starts were against the other teams, number ones or the other teams, number twos, you know, Roger Clemens or, or Jack Morris or Frank Viola or Chuck Finley or, or Dan Petrie, somebody like that. You know, those were the guys that I was starting against. And so as we moved on during the, during the season, especially in the latter part of the season, he always told me to play these games out as if though they mean something, that you're playing for something. Make these big starts for you. Um, and that helped me immensely when it came to postseason.
0: Dave, would he specifically try and line you up against other teams' specific aces to have those kind of games?
2: But you start the season as right. the number one. You're pitching against number ones. But in a lot of situations, especially with Roger Clemens and Morris, um, if I wasn't a line two pitch against them, then he would he would pitch me on the fourth day so that my matchups were against those guys. Wow. Um, did that a lot. That's that, interesting. I mean, that's
1: cool. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's definitely a way to train yourself to get ready for the postseason. You know what I mean? Make every start a big start. That's how you, that's how you get it done. In my opinion, you have to, you have to simulate those situations
2: to be able to adapt to them when you're actually in them. And, um, you know, I felt like in in postseason play, um, because I'd done it so many times, I wasn't really bothered by the situation or moved by the situation and emotionally, um, I had already learned how to slow the game down when I needed to, or to speed it up when I needed to. And so for me, it really becomes a matter of, I mean, you know what's going to happen in postseason. At least you know what the script is supposed to be. You know it's supposed to be low scoring. You know it's supposed to be games where you have to execute pitches and concentrate pitch by pitch, and you can't have lapses. And, you know, fortunately, I I was able to be able, I was able to, to really focus in those situations.
1: That was something that, like me, early on, I had to learn. My, I, I feel like my first two post seasons, I was just, just kind of trying to get through, just thinking I was gonna go out and dominate. Not really, you know, worried about concentrating on every pitch. And you know, the, I, I feel like the results showed that. Um, when I got here, to your point of making every start a big start, like opening day was a big start. My first Red Sox start was a big start. Then I had a Red Sox start in in August where we were trying to get first place. That was a big start. So I had all these, you know, biggest starts of my career leading up to the playoffs, which I had already done it. You know, what I mean, like I'm I'm standing on the mound in the Bronx in Game One. I'm like, I you know I've been here already. So it, you know, it 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 being able to like learn that skill is, is something that uh it, it took me a while to to be able to to pitch in the postseason to to slow the game down. Yeah, but see,
2: playing in New York, in my opinion. It's a totally different thing, anyway. <laughs> but if you can play a bitch in New York, you can play a bitch in anywhere. <laughs> so, in my opinion, it seemed, and I never had that experience. The the one experience I had to come come to New York, I ended up going to Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in I was New York was competing with Toronto for my services in '93. Everybody that I've talked to about playing and pitching in New York is if you don't go in there with the right mindset, it's going to be a difficult time. And, you know, you know, New York has crushed, crushed some big, big guys, man. Randy, one of the best to ever take the mound, couldn't pitch in New York. So
1: I think playing in New York prepared you as well. Yeah, for sure. Was it any added pressure, like pitching in, in Oakland, like being at home, like all of that, you know? that pressure, because that can be, you know, that can be tough, too. Man, you you know,
2: you're you from the area, so...
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: Me <laughs> pitching at home, man, it was just an opportunity, man, for me to talk mess to all the cats that have been talking mess to me. and <laughs> Growing up, man, it was a... My basketball coach, his name was Johnny Burke, and he kicked me off the team twice in one season. <laughs> told, me, told me I was never going to be nothing, so... I ran into Johnny, I ran into Johnny over at uh over at uh Gregory Pete's place uh, <laughs> one night and I said, uh so so what's the deal now, man? So <laughs> he 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 turned it around on me and told me that him kicking me off the team made me the man I grew up to be.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, that's phenomenal. Man, that's great.
1: And, so I wanted to ask you another question, too, about growing up in Oakland, your relationship with Reggie. I know you had a, a relationship with Reggie Jackson uh, when you were younger, growing up, going to the stadium. Um, tell, can you tell us about that?
2: Shoot, I have a relationship with Reggie. I have, yeah. yeah. Uh, Reggie uh, calls me his little bro. Um, I met Reggie, man, you know, shoot, I never paid, I never paid to get to the stadium back in them days. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was riding my bicycle. I stayed probably a stone's throw from the Coliseum. So I would get on my bike, me and my cousins, chain our bikes to the union 76 station, go down the tracks, hop the fence, hop another fence, boom, you're in right field. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and so we were laying out in right field. Um, through BP, and balls were being hit, and, and Jack had his back to the had his back to the infield, just waiting for us to stick our heads up. He screamed out at us. And he said, "Hey, old man, Finley gonna put you guys out of this ballpark." And I said, Oh man, Finley couldn't keep us out of the ballpark, so how's <laughs> he gonna put us out of the ballpark?" <laughs> So so that was the start of it. And then after that game, it's crazy how things happened because I ended up playing with Rick Mundy. Rick Mundy ended up being my teammate with the Dodgers. And so um, Moe hit a home run that night and my cousin Kevin caught the ball and we waited after for Rick Mundy to come out. And when uh, Rick Mundy was second to the last and obviously Reggie was the last guy to come out. Mm -hmm. And so Mundy... We asked him for the autograph and he told us, you know, asked us, well, isn't isn't tonight a school night? He said, we told him, yeah, tonight's a school night. He says, I'm not giving you an autograph. You need to go home and get yourself in bed and get ready for school tomorrow. My cousin Kevin called him an asshole. (laughs) 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 And so so, Mm -hmm. uh, Reggie came out after that. And Reggie said, oh, you that young punk that was talking all that mess and right field to me. Oh. Um, and so uh, he said, uh, where y'all live? And we told him where we live. And he asked us, he said, hey, do you guys want, do you, do you need a ride? We'll give you a ride to your house. And I said, no, nah, man, we we got our bikes chained up over at the Union 76 station. And I said, besides, my mother said, don't ever take rides with strangers. <laughs> <laughs> So, we got our bicycles, but he he was driving slow. Followed us all the way till our houses. Until we got to the house next day, about four o'clock, he was passing down that same same down our street, Haven's Court, um, looking for us. We were at the ballpark again, and so our meeting, and eventually friendship came from just seeing him out hanging out in right field. And then eventually he was leaving us tickets to sit with him or sit with his girlfriend at that time. And then I never saw Reggie again um, past, uh, once I graduated, until we played him in the World Series in
1: 1981. Wow, wow.
2: At at that time, you know, I had grown, mature, face had matured. He didn't know who I was, man, so he wasn't having a good series, man. So I was there with my son, Adrian, and we were at Dodger Stadium, and he was taking extra BP. And and so we were walking in the stadium and I said, shoot, man, let me go over here and reintroduce myself to him so he'll know who I am. And I walked up on him and he stepped out of the cage and he said, hey, don't you know, I'm here trying to get my preparation in? you wait my preparation time. man. And plus <laughs> you play for the Dodgers. I don't have no time for the opposing team. You're wasting my preparation. I said, Reggie, I said, man, it's a little Stew." He said he looked at me. He said, Little stoop. I said, Yeah, man. He said, Oh man. And and we've been, we've been in contact communication ever since. That, that is an is amazing
0: awesome. story. Like amazing. Oh my gosh. Yeah,
2: that that's how we that's how we got reunited. And I know, and I've been around Reggie, and you know, if you catch Reggie on a good day, you catch him on a good day. Mm-hmm. You catch him on a bad day, you catch him on a bad day. But <laughs> I can tell you this. I've never had a bad day with Reggie Jackson ever. Mm. Uh, It's always been, as he said, it's been like a brother to brother relationship. Um, I call him and talk to him about different things today. Um, and he calls me, I don't miss his birthday. He doesn't miss mine. Um, that's, that's, that's our relationship.
1: That's unbelievable. That's awesome. That story is incredible.
0: Absolutely incredible. Now, I gotta go. I, I I gotta go back on the non-Reggie part of the story, Dave. It was it was Rick Monday who who did
1: not sign the ball. Is that right? And then did, did you tell him? Did you tell him about that when you played with him? You know what he told me. This is in nineteen.
2: My first spring training was in nineteen. That was my first time I pitched in a big league camp. It was in seventy-seven, and so I saw Rick Monday, and when I saw him. Told him, I said, hey man, you are you are you are an asshole, man. We, we <laughs> so he said, he said, who said, said, who are you? Because he didn't know me. It was my first big league camp. Plus, I had that big number, or you know, when you when you come in your first big league camp, they give you an 80. So yeah, I had yeah, on. <laughs> I was a big league camp. And he said, Man, who are you? I said, man, you used to play for the A's. And I started naming up all the players on the team. And I said, one night, your first major league home run, me and my cousins were waiting outside for you and you were the second to last person out, wanted you to sign the ball, and you wouldn't sign the ball. So he said, I remember now, he said, you called me an asshole. I said, <laughs> I, said, I, him, I said, I didn't call you an asshole. I said, my cousin did. He said, well, he said, I'm just telling you now. He says, I may have been an asshole then, but you're an asshole now. And don't ever give me, don't ever ask me to sign a ball. And and he ended up that day giving me a nickname of Vegas. And I still don't know why he gave me that nickname, but Mo and I, man, we're we're close now too. That's
0: oh funny, that babe. is amazing.
2: <laughs> but by the way, how just I mean,
0: how incredibly random and hilarious is it that your
2: cousin catches his first home run ball? It's crazy, isn't it? They had just, they had, the the team had just moved here from Kansas City in 68, um, and Reggie and Rick Mundy, Bando, uh, there was a guy named Ramon Webster. Those guys were all in their first year playing in the big leagues, and my cousin caught, we obviously, we were there opening day, and uh, we caught, we caught his, well, my cousin caught his first, first home run ball. Hmm.
1: That and that's is... when, the, that's when the, Ryan, that's when the Coliseum was actually a nice park, too, like before they built uh, Mount Davis up there.
2: Yeah, man, it was a great park. You could see yeah. the, the open skyline and everything. It was a great place place to play baseball, a beautiful place to go and watch a game.
0: It was, for sure. Yeah, what do you remember, see about going and watching the A's uh,
1: when you were a kid? Like, like you say, it was a beautiful place to watch the game. Like it was, you know, the park was wide open. It wasn't that big section in the middle. Yeah. So you could see like the mountains and it was, you know, it was this dude named uh, Crazy George that used to be all over the place with like a, he had like this drum and he would be on top of the damn speaker over here, the speaker over here. And it was so loud in there. I remember like, you, have you been to the Coliseum before, Ryan? I, I've been to the,
0: yeah, to this, this incarnation of it. Yes.
1: Yeah. It was, it was loud. So I just yeah. remember it being so loud. Obviously the A's being really good. And like every time we went to the game, they won. So it was just, it was always a good experience. You know what I'm saying? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you you know what's funny though you asked dave about pitching at home and what that was like and i can remember the first time i went to the coliseum c was actually your first start back there as a yankee yeah. and you pitch well you guys won but up until that point i'm pretty sure you hadn't pitched that well in oakland and it was like a thing right it was like a you wouldn't pitch good there. So when you asked the question to Dave, it made me wonder, like, oh, you know, was that a hard thing for you to do, to pitch when you were at home around
1: everybody? For me, it was. It was. It was a really hard thing for me to do because, like he said, I was always trying to prove to people. Like, there's always people in your hometown that you always feel like you need to prove stuff to no matter what you do. So I was always on the mound and felt like I was, I need to prove why – I'm out here, you know what I mean? Being so close to, being so close to Oakland. Um, and it never worked out. I, I have the highest ERA in my career in that, in that stadium. I don't know what I did. Like, it was always grand slams, homers, like seven walks a game. I just, I, I mean, at the, by the end, I would just try to skip that trip. Like, just let me pitch in Seattle. Cause we would always go Anaheim, Oakland, Seattle. I pitch in Anaheim and then in Seattle. Let me skip Oakland.
0: That is hilarious.
1: <laughs> That's great. Th- Hey,
0: Dave, you're, when you're pitching in the in the '80s and then you know throughout to the mid '90s, if you were going to name a hitter or two who gave you the biggest trouble or who you know you were like, oh gosh, this is the toughest guy for me to get out, who were the hitters that come to mind?
2: Well, started actually in the '70s and the '80s was Ken Griffey Sr. Hmm, and then. Ken Griffey Sr. passed that same bat to his son Ken Griffey Jr.
1: because
2: <laughs> you know Ken Griffey Jr.'s first two major league hits were off of me at the Coliseum. I didn't know that.
0: I did yep. not know that.
2: Yeah. So I was getting spanked by father and son. I told I told Junior. I said he must have give you the scout report. He, told, he said he said man, my daddy just told me man. The lower you pull that cap down, the matter you get. So
1: <laughs> said, I was
2: up there trying to hit the first thing across the plate. And then um, Paul Molitor was a tough out for me, a really tough out for me. Mm. And then a guy that you wouldn't even think about um, who has the most home runs off me was Greg Vaughn. Oh, wow.
0: Greg Vaughn. Wow. That's interesting.
2: Uh, that's one of those cases, man, where the more you tried to get him out, or more I tried to get him out, the more mistakes I made across the yeah. middle of the plate, mm. and and um, he wasn't missing those mistakes.
1: That that was Evan Longoria for me. Oh, there you I go. Mean, I could, I could, I, I just, I was like, the one time he had a triple, I was like, man, I'm gonna start throwing an underhand to you because I mean, <laughs> I'm out here just wasting pitches. Just go ahead and do what you're gonna do because I'm tired of like <sighs> trying to rack my brain trying to. Get him out. I would go into games and be like, I'm just going to throw him all sliders today. And he would still go three for four with, with a double and a homer. <laughs> oh, man. So, you, you
0: guys have a, you know, something that you both have in common is being workhorses, right? In addition to the postseason success that, that you each have had, you know, see, you were known for that. Like, a, in an era where guys were increasingly going shorter distances, you know, you're going – You're going eight innings. You're throwing complete games. You're going seven and two thirds. I mean, I remember you had a stretch in 2009 where I forget how many straight starts it was. You completed at least seven innings when people weren't doing that anymore. And Dave, you know, you go through a stretch in 88, 89, 90, where three years in a row, you face more batters than anybody in baseball and you're throwing 275 innings and 260 innings and 265 innings. I think sometimes. We underrate that part of the equation, right? Just the fact that you're giving your team innings. How much pride did you have in that, Dave, knowing like, hey, I got the ball, I'm going to finish this, or I got the ball, bullpen's basically getting a day off when I'm on the mound?
2: Well, you know, I'll go back to Tony again. Tony, um, at the beginning of every year, always stressed how important it was to make your starts and to be dependable. Um, you know, I coming into the big leagues, uh, took a different path than CC. Um, I started out in the bullpen um, with a, a strong desire to want to be a starter. And so in 86, when Tony came to this team and he gave me the opportunity to, to be a starter in that rotation, um, I was ready for that situation and wanted it, and once things started rolling the way they did, I wasn't willing to to, to give it up. The most important things for me were not were not um, wins. The most important thing for me was pitching innings, um, because if you pitch innings, um, you're going to get your wins. And so, I think the one year that you mentioned that I had 275. That was the year I told him I was going to pitch 300. And he started taking me out of games, man, and I think that year, truthfully, I probably had close to two hundred innings at the break, Wow, and he started taking me out of games after seven innings. He meant I was steaming oh. <laughs> because you you'll see in that year, I had complete games too, but yeah, you fourteen st- of them, <laughs> yeah, so I'm a strong believer that you know if you can pitch deep in the games it makes your bullpen that much better for the guy the next day.
1: Mm-hmm. And if
2: he pitches, if he pitches deep, it makes it better for the guy the next day. And so for me, it's all about, and, and i tell you another thing, truthfully, and Sandy Koufax told me this, a quality start is when you shake in the hands of your teammates when the game is over. And that's, that's what I live by. Um, So it, it was important for me. It was a badge of honor to pitch complete games, to pitch a lot of innings um, during the course of the season, and Tony said, "Well, he was concerned about you know my career and how long I'd be able to pitch." And and my only concern was having the opportunity to be out there. And then I worry about I worry about my career as as things happen. But while I'm in this moment. Let me live in this moment. Let me do the things that I'm capable of doing. And if I pitch for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, then so be it. But, you know, I want to do it the way I want to do it.
1: Man, that's crazy. That, that, what he just said is what I was telling everybody when I was pitching in Milwaukee on three yeah. days rest. If I don't pitch another inning after this, let me, let me live right now. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm feeling good right now. Let me go. Like this is how I feel. I worry about everything, how it unfolds after that. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I mean, see, did you also feel because the game had obviously started to shift even more that way? It started to happen more and more when Dave's playing, obviously, and then it I, I wasn't more. thinking.
1: I wasn't yeah. thinking anything other than let's just try to make the playoffs. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, I, like, it, like when I was like, whenever I was in the moment of pitching, like it wasn't. It, I didn't never thought further than that game or. Mm. This or this series or this season. You know what I'm saying? Like it was always I was always just trying to stay in that moment. And if I felt good in that moment, you best believe it, I'm gonna take the the ball three days later if you need me to. And then yeah. three days after that if you need me to. And if we gotta go, 0-9, we only got three starters because we got off days. Guess what? I'm I'm gonna take the ball game one, four, and seven. You know, that's just it is just it is what it is. Yeah. The, but
0: did you also see, did you have that like that pride of knowing, hey, when I take the ball bullpen's getting a day off or like we're only using Mo or I mean, what? because, because you're throwing eight innings, eight innings, eight in, when people aren't doing that in 2009.
1: No, I was trying to. Yeah. I mean, like, like he said, um, like, like Stu said, a quality start is when you are standing out there shaking hands after the game with the yeah. catcher, <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that was the only way, the only way I measured a quality start. And, and after that, you know, I was trying to figure out how I was going to do it again. So you know, it, I mean, yeah, I was always trying to pitch as deep as possible into the games. And, you know, if that's 115, 20 pitches, you know, I can take it.
2: You no, know, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, and C just made a good point. You You pitch a good game and then you don't really get a chance. If you're doing it the right way, you don't get a chance to enjoy your work because the preparation for your next start begins the next day. Mm-hmm. and and now you're dissecting and figuring out your game plan and going by going back over everything that you've done against that particular team for a career and what's made you successful for them the guys that do it right they don't have a chance man to you know pat themselves on the back because the next challenge starts right away and um so I mean that's that was a really really good point that you made there, man. You just don't have time. You don't have time to sit back and relax because it's it's going. It's going twenty. You got thirty five starts to make. You know, one year I had thirty seven. So you gotta you gotta get yourself prepared, ready. You've got your physical preparation and but the mental preparation to grind. You know, when you're a number one starter, there's a there's a responsibility on you. That nobody can even imagine um and it's 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 the responsibility of hope when you come in the clubhouse and your teammates are looking at you when you've lost four straight and they're looking at you to be the guy to end it it's starting that first game in the playoffs it's starting that first game of the World Series it's it's the beginning of the season when people are saying and they're chalking you they're chalking you up and they're marking you down see he's going to start thirty five games. And we're going to get 16 W's out of him. You know, that is a huge responsibility that no one can possibly understand unless you wear those shoes.
0: Did you ever have a situation where, you let's say, hey, team's struggling or or whatever. It's just a game you need to win. You got the ball. And do you actually verbally say to your teammates, Fellas, don't worry. I got this. I got you today. Like, did you ever a- actually verbalize that to teammates at any moments?
2: I only did that one time in my career. Um, we were playing the Toronto Blue Jays in 1992. It was actually the last start I ever made um, for the A's, for the in A's. 1992 playoffs. And Dennis Eckersley had given up a bomb against Robbie Alomar. We're down. We're down three games, two, one. Hmm and and the guys are wondering if guys are wondering if we're going to have to get if we're going to get on the plane to go to Toronto for the next for the for that next start so we got one more home game and i mean the clubhouse was quiet usually after the game we got music playing win lose we got music playing people talking mess yeah this day everybody was quiet and um and Mickey Morbido, had, who's our traveling secretary, had said, well, I don't know what we're going to do tomorrow, you know, as far as how we prepare to travel or if we're not going to travel. He said the best thing to do would just be make sure you pack your stuff and just have it here. And if we go, we go. And then that's when I stood up and I actually stood up on the on the food table and I said it. I said, hey, tomorrow you guys be prepared to go to Toronto. If the sun shines, we're gonna win a baseball game if I'm on the mound. So be ready to go. <laughs> and in Toronto, man, somehow, because I saw Joe Carter coming into the stadium. This this is this is one of those this is one of those moments that you never forget, but I never really thought about it. I never really thought about it. I was walking. In in those days, you could either park in in, in, in F-lot or you can park in center field and walk through center field to the clubhouse. Now, I was one of those guys that one hour before the game, I'm coming to the stadium before I pitch. I didn't waste a whole lot of time at the stadium on the days that I pitch. I come in one hour before. Wow. Well, I was walking through center field. Toronto was hitting. and Joe Carter screamed at me from right field oh you guaranteeing wins now huh (laughs) I told told Joe I said hey Joe just be ready to hit baby be ready to hit
1: (laughs) that's awesome Uh, and
0: you go and you throw a complete game, and you yes, guys win. That's what I
1: did. That's uh, your <laughs> Yo, Stu, I wanted to ask. I know, you know, I, obviously, I looked up to you, and you know, you're my idol on the mound. But who were your guys that you looked up to growing up? Who were the guys that you uh, yeah. really looked up to? Who were the guys that you know? The, some of the Black Aces, obviously, were part of that group. Yeah. that uh, that you really looked up to.
2: Well, see, you know, you know, my man, dude, he just passed away, Bob Gibson. Hmm. Um, was was the main guy for me when I was growing up. He was the guy that, um, you know, my, my my folks, my dad in particular, brought me to every baseball game that I ever went to when I was a kid. And he always told me, you know, because I I didn't get a chance to see Don Newcomb pitch. Um, so he said, this is the guy. If you ever decide you're going to be on the mound, if you ever decide you're going to pitch, this is the guy. So Don Newcomb was, was uh, not Don Newcomb, but Bob Gibson was the, was the number one guy for me um, uh, that I really admired and wanted to be like, and I wanted to do everything that he did. That was the, that was the guy for me, Bob, Bob Gibson.
0: Did you develop, I mean, what kind of relationship did you have with Bob then in, in the years after you rose to prominence, Dave?
2: You know, I had the opportunity to meet Bob Gibson through Reggie Smith um who had played with Bob. And after that relationship, I was young and Bob said he knew who I was as a pitcher. But even with Bob being out of the game, you know, he was still a tough guy to read and a tough guy because he didn't talk a lot. Mm. You know, he was a quiet man and actually soft spoken. Um, and so he didn't talk a lot at that time. But as time went on and I got older in the game and started establishing who I was in the game. Um, I had opportunities to meet him and be around him a little bit more. And, you know, he would, if you asked him about stories that you heard about him, he would share those, but he wouldn't openly tell you things about himself. Um, We talked about, we talked about the Negro leagues. And um, uh, one of the things that he talked about, even though it only happened for a year was when he played for the Harlem Globetrotters. We got to talk, and that really um, is one of the first times that I can remember him carrying a lasting smile and actually laughing about those times that he played with the Globe Trotters. And then um, later on, we did a 20, 20, 20 win, um card show, actually in New Jersey. See, and um, we uh, drove in from the airport together, and we rode back to the airport together, and. I remember asking him, I said, I said, I said, Gibby, I got a question for you. He said, What, what, what do you want? I
1: said,
2: <laughs> And I said, You got to tell the truth, man. I said, You hit a lot of people, man, in your time. I said, How many of those were intentional? And he looked at me like, And I never hit anybody on purpose. <laughs> 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 oh, that is amazing oh,
1: man, that's, that's fantastic
0: <laughs> I mean Dave you were known for having this intimidating style as well H- how much of that that style that intimidation were you motivated by from, from watching Bob Gibson
2: part of it was Bob Gibson but uh, a lot of it was um, that I was extremely wild when I was learning how to pitch I was a catcher in high school <clears throat> and became a pitcher my first year of professional baseball. And so Sandy Koufax had me in instructional league my second year after I hadn't won a game had walked more people than I had innings pitched and was really struggling with it. And so Sandy said, we're going to take your mechanics. We're going to turn them all around. We're going to break everything down and just do this all new. And And he told me his story of how he was wild when he first played. Back in his time, you sent for $100,000, you had to go immediately to the big leagues. And so he was wild for his first few years in the big leagues. And so he said, try this, get on the mound, lower your cap as low as you can to the point where you can still see the catcher. And so I did that. And the lowest point was I couldn't see the catcher's head, but I could see from his shoulder down. And he said, now throw the baseball. And I threw the baseball. And everything that I threw was in that area versus being wild high and, you know, out of the strike zone. Everything I threw was, was down in the zone. And that's how I came to start lowering my cap. And, and that was the look that people, that people, grew, that people grew to see.
1: How wow! Was, so uh, Sandy how, Koufax talked. I was sorry, about to see. say yeah. Sandy, Sandy. Sandy Koufax, Koufax taught, like, yeah. and That's amazing. That was the how guy, was he as like a pitching coach? I heard. I mean, I, we always hear stories about how great of a pitcher he was, and I read his book. But like, I always hear how good he was, like instruction wise, and like getting guys to to really understand their delivery.
2: You know, he was he was simple, and Ron um, uh, who just passed away, was our pitching coordinator at that time, and then eventually my major league pitching coach. Um, but um Sandy made it easy and he 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 made it so I could relate to him and his struggles when he was wild. And he made it all, he just made it easy when he was breaking down my mechanics and telling me what the important parts of my mechanics were. Those are things that I didn't I'd never heard from Ron Peranowski before. And so it was easy for me to put those things in motion once I was shown and told what to do. So he was great, man. And quite frankly, though I hated the Dodgers when I was a kid growing up because,
1: yeah, me too. you know, they were
2: they were <laughs> they were, you know, nemesis for the Giants. And, you know, I remember when John Roseboro got hit upside the head by Juan Marichal. And, you know, I remember Colfax and Drysdale and coming in and dusting Willie Mays off. And I remember all of that. I hated the Dodgers. But um, <laughs> when I got to know Sandy, um, that was one of the best things that I did, and I stayed in contact and communication with him, even after I left the Dodgers. And he was always helpful whenever I called on him.
0: That's so cool. I mean so- it, it. It's just amazing that to to be able to go back and 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 trace where the you know where the intimidating stare comes from with the <laughs> lowered cap, yeah. And it being Sandy Koufax. I mean, how cool is that?
2: That's it. That was, and he never wore his cap like that, but he taught me how to get down in the strike zone and how to be able to throw strikes. And the year after I was with him instructional instructionally, I come back the next minor league season. I went 18 games. I was 18 and four.
1: Wow. Wow! From winning that... no
2: games. I didn't win any games.
1: And, and then the, the next catching. year I'm 18 and four. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. It's amazing. It's amazing. Dave, you right. also, Oh, go ahead. See, no, I was, I was going to ask you about another teammate of yours, uh, Bob Welch. Um, <laughs> you know, I got a I got a, yeah, I got a, I got a chance to read his book when I was going through my struggles in rehab. And it really like brought me through the other side, being able to chance get a chance to read his book and knowing his struggles and what he went through. But I forgot that you guys played together. So you, you got any you know stories about him? Any, man, any good things?
2: That was my dude, <laughs> man. You know, be a bunch like <laughs> we went all the way back to, to mid seventies, seventy-eight, and Bobby was one of my best friends, man. And and you know, things happened for him quick, man. He got he got drafted. And before you knew it, he was in the big leagues pitching against the Yankees in one of the one of the best known World Series ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, I got tons of stories about Bobby. Man, shoot, Bobby was competitive. Man, this is how competitive he was back in the day. I used to use um, this this uh, this equipment called the Versa, Versa Climber, uh-huh.
1: and so I had
2: I had a Versa Climber that I put in the clubhouse, and three or four days later, all of a sudden. There's another Versa climber coming in. <laughs> Welty had bought a Versa climber. <laughs>
0: so
2: if, now Welty man, he could run for days. He was he could run for days. Um, he could run distance so far that we had a run that we called the Wiley e. Coyote Run, and we named it after him because nobody ever finished the run. So. <laughs> We're on this versatile climb. He said, Come on, Stu. He put the heart, he put the heart monitor on. He said, Come on, Stu, man, let's go, man. I'm I'm challenging you, man. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> and needless to say, man, he wore my butt out on that vertical <laughs> climb. So in spring training, man. so in spring training, you we're in Arizona. He said, Come on, man, let's go, let's go for a run. And I'm already leery, And I told him, I said, Well T man, I'm not running. I'm not running no 10 miles with you, man. He <laughs> said, no, man, come on, man. We'll just go for a run. We'll go for a quick run. We'll come back. So we're at Municipal Stadium, which in, in Arizona is is mm-hmm. off of McDowell, not for of Van Buren. Tempe is distant, probably four or five miles. So we take off. We're running outside the stadium, and we're running. And we're running, sweating like a pig because it's hot. And I look up, and I say, Welchie, where in the hell are we? He said, I don't know, man, but come on, man, let's let's, let's go a little bit more, man, and then we'll turn around and we'll go back. I said, well, T, man, we've been running for over an hour, man. I said, I'm going back, man. He said, you heading out? She said, yeah. So I was standing on the corner, and he said, man, well, what are you waiting for if you're going back? See, man, I don't know where the hell we at, man. I'm taking a cab back, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I literally, uh, I literally held a cab back, man, to, to get back to Municipal Stadium. Oh, that's, oh, that's, great, that's an amazing man. story. Amazing. I, I,
0: Dave, you were ahead of your time with the Versa climber, man. LeBron James is all about the Versa climber.
2: Oh, man, I was killing that Versa climber until Welchie got me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you man D- Dave these stories are incredible and you're you're a man who not only had this remarkable success as a pitcher but you also have had several different roles in organizations since you know you've been in front offices you've been GM you've been you know pitching coach you, you, you've kind of done it all when you look at the landscape of today's organizational structure and sort of the way that um i guess baseball operations has evolved and coaching has evolved and 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 the game on the field just what are some thoughts you have about the game today maybe some concerns things you like things you want people to be careful of just about the state of the game today
2: no it's funny last night i sent out uh, i sent out a tweet which you know i'm i'm not i got to be honest i'm not the best at twitter
0: yeah None of us are. No.
2: Yeah, I was listening at John Smoltz, and you know, Smoltz is a throwback, Hall of Famer. I was yeah. listening to him talk about some of the records that these guys are, are breaking. You know, um, I think it's uh he was talking about Kershaw career wins and and you know, some of the some of the, the stuff and the foundation that's being laid out right now. And my tweet was, I love today's game, I do, but when these guys are out there shattering and breaking these records, it's easy to do today because you've got all of these different layers. You got wild cards, you got division, you got league championship, and then you got the World Series. When most of these numbers were being put up, for example, by me, league championship, World Series is all we had. And so, when you talk about twelve wins, if I'm not mistaken, I got eleven to twelve wins in postseason and. We didn't have as many layers as you yeah. got right now. And so, you know, I just think that when you look at today's game, and these today's players, they talk about how strong, how much stronger they are, how much harder they throw. Um, you know, Trackman um, has put guys in a position to look like everybody throws 100. When we were doing radar, when I was throwing, the radar would collect the information once it hit the catcher's glove not out of the pitcher's hand. The fastest velocity that you're going to see is out of the pitcher's hand. And that's where track man takes the velocity. It doesn't take it once it hits the, the catcher's glove between the catcher's glove and the pitcher's hands. there's probably a two to three mile an hour difference. So a hundred might be a hundred, but a hundred once it hit that catcher's glove could very well be 96 or 95. And so I love today's game. Um, I love how, um, you know, baseball is trying to find a way to, to get young kids back into the game. Um, I don't like the values of today's game. Um, if we're being point blank honest, uh, I yes. don't like the values of today's games. I don't like the fact that you don't try to manufacture runs, that the home run is the big is a, is a big thing and you're waiting around for people to hit the ball out of the ballpark versus manufacturing runs and moving runners, hitting and running, stealing. Uh, i don't like the fact that hitters aren't smart enough to to outplay the shift that you that you play into the shift instead of you know doing what tony gwen did for a career which is hit the ball all field spray the ball um i don't like the fact that 5 innings is acceptable now for starting pitchers um and that not only is 5 innings acceptable but they have 100 pitches in 5 innings and so I mean, there's a lot of things about the game that that I do love. There are a lot of things about the game that I don't love. I don't think that you should be giving awards out for this year's season. I mean, shoot, you see, you want a sigh? How do you feel about guys only throwing 12 games and winning a Cy Young? Only pitching, pitching, not even 60 innings and winning Cy Youngs?
1: It's it's not even that. It's just pitching in the same division. Like you pitched in the you pitched in the central the whole time. Like the guys gonna win the, the the Cy Young pitched in the central the whole time. Like he pitches one game out of the central, and it's against the Yankees in the playoffs, and he gives up six runs. You know what I'm saying? So and even that pressure of pitching down the stretch with the like with the Cy Young on the line. Like those are playoff games. Your last three starts in September, if you if you got the Cy Young hanging on your back, those are playoff. I don't care who you are pitching against. Those are playoff games. You know, so it's different. So, I mean, that's that's my take on, on the game today. I love it, but
2: there are a lot of things that I don't love about it because it, it strays away from what the real tradition of the game was about and why baseball was America's number one sport for as long as it was.
1: And for you, like, I mean, obviously me growing up, watching your teams play those A's teams, the athleticism and, you know, manufacturing runs, bunting and running, you know, I mean, you guys did hit balls out of the ballpark, but... You guys, you can you can manufacture a run like Mookie did last night. With you know, Ricky would do that all the time, first inning. You know what I'm saying? He gets on still, second and third ground balls, one and nothing, and that's the baseball I grew up watching and loving. So I understand what you're saying for sure.
2: I mean, we we took pride in beating you down in every way. You know, if we didn't hit, we were going to outpitch you. If we didn't pitch, we were going out. We were going to outscore you. If the games were equal and it was a close game. You can believe, man, we were gonna steal bases, hit and run, you know, open up holes through through runners in motion. But shoot, I beat Roger Clemens one to nothing on it on a on a squeeze play. So, I mean, we did everything we could to win baseball games, and that's unfortunate in today's game where you got late innings, runners on first and second with no outs, and they're swinging they're swinging away versus bunning runners over that's that's the unfortunate thing about today's game.
0: You know, the one thing that I think from an entertainment value that's missed too is when you don't have that stuff. The game isn't as exciting, right? Like that's that's the other thing you're missing. It's it's not it, it's not just like okay, well, is this the most effective strategy? It's well, the game is not as pleasing to the eye if all of a sudden I don't have that kind of running, right? And I don't have as much contact and I I don't have as much action then. And now, all of a sudden, the game is not is not as entertaining. Even if, even if you wanted to be okay, what's our best strategy to get to a win? Okay, but what about what's the best thing for the audience's eye as well? And that's a that's another angle I think supports a little more little more movement, a little more running, a little more bu- little more strategy as far as moving runners over, making contact.
2: The game to d- the game today, in my opinion, is it's easy to play today's baseball. It's easy. Um, because there is minimal strategy. Managers now are getting their lineups sent to them by a managed upper management. Um, and the game for most of the managers in today's game is played by a script versus instinct and,
1: and feeling for the moment. He, he's right. I mean, it, uh, it's a lot easier to play in the big leagues today just because you only have to be good at one thing. Like you can, you know, back when in the day you had to be able to hit, run, throw, all that. Like now you can just have one of those skills and they'll find a place for you. You know what I'm hmm. saying? Like, it wasn't like that back in the day where you had to be able to to actually play in the field. Now they'll just, you know, they'll find a place for you and, and not worry about the defense. The value of the home run. Dave, this has been amazing. Your stories are, they,
0: they're, they're just incredible. They're absolutely legendary. incredible. They are legendary. That's what they are. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on with us because, you know, I, I've, I've co-hosted with C and we know each other a long time. And, and for years now though, with the podcast, and I would say you come up like every other podcast there. C is going to bring up Dave Stewart. It's going to (laughs) happen. It's going to, Hey, C, before we go, you want to tell Dave about uh, some artwork that might be in your future.
1: I got, I'm getting these tattoos on my, on my legs. I'm getting like my favorite athletes um, growing up. So I'm going to get you. I'm going to get Bo Jackson. And then my cousin, I grew up with, he's like my big brother. Um, He passed away, but he played in the NFL for a little bit. So I'm gonna get I'm gonna get those three guys as like my, you know, those are the guys I looked up to, and the reason why Mm -hmm. I'm here. So that that's my next. Those are my next tattoos. That's a huge
2: honor, brother. I hope before I die, I don't embarrass you. <laughs>
1: you be, you
2: got me you on your leg, man. You be, you be trying to get that one off. Damn. <laughs>
0: oh,
1: <amazing. laughs>
2: uh,
0: what a perfect note to finish up on. Dave, thank you so much. I can't wait for C to get the tattoo and show you it. For All sure. right,
2: brothers. It was good to be on C. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate you, man. And I appreciate the feeling of of really that I've done something good in my life, man. Thank you very much, brother.
1: No, I appreciate you. And, and like I said, thank you. I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for you. I would have never took the mound. I would have never took it serious. And, you know, you're my idol, man. I grew up watching you. So, uh, you know, I appreciate you everything. Everything you've done for me. All right,
2: me. man. You guys have a good day.
0: We'll see. Those Dave Stewart stories I could listen to all day, man. I mean, that Reggie Jackson story is mind-blowing how insane meeting him as a kid and those interactions and then getting to go up against him in the World Series. I mean, just incredible.
1: Right? Like, imagine, like, walking up to him. I mean, because you know how Reggie is. We know how Reggie is. But like like Stu said, I've never had a bad day with Reggie either. It's all, you know, it's all been been great for me. So um, I couldn't imagine, you know, trying to go up and reintroduce myself to him, though. Um, but that's awesome that they had that relationship early. I knew that story. I just wanted everybody to to hear it and and, and just know the connection that, you know, some of these people from the Bay Area have, um, you know, with the A's and, and why we love that city and that town so much. Um, because they, you know, the, the players that played there were a part of the fabric, a part of, you know, us. And, you know, going back to Stu. Coming to my boys and girls club, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like the players were really in the community, and and that was something that really struck home with us. You know, being from the Bay, and obviously it turned into you know me doing what I'm doing now. So uh, yeah, I mean it's 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 uh, it's it's great to be able to hear those stories and hear how it was passed down to you. Well, absolutely fantastic stuff from Dave Stewart.
0: You guys know the deal. New episodes every Thursday. Download, listen, rate, review, get it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We also throw in bonus episodes, so you know you'll have one Thursday morning, and a lot of times you get extra ones too. Until then, peace.